Good morning. Last Sunday morning, there was a man who walked into the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, um, a small town that's just east of San Antonio. And in a matter of minutes, he had killed 26 people. Over the last week, we have mourned this tragic loss of life. We've prayed for the families and the victims and for the overwhelming grief that they must be feeling. And our nation has searched for answers. If you've watched this on the news, you've heard these kinds of questions. Could this have been prevented? Do churches need to have active shooter training? Do we need stricter gun laws? Do we need better mental health resources? How was this guy able to buy a gun? How could someone do such an evil thing? Now most of these are questions that we can't answer. Because nothing that we do now can undo what has already happened. But the last question, how could someone do such a thing? That's a question that we actually can't answer. And it's a question that we must answer. This morning we are continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to be looking at the issue of murder. What drives someone to commit murder? What kind of a person would open fire on a church? How could someone do such a terrible and evil thing? Please follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Please pray with me. Father, as we gather together this morning, we are a people who hurt, people who are confused, people who are longing for answers and direction and hope. Father, we pray in this time that we have together that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us ears to listen and hearts to believe your rich and great, your just and true promises. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're moving into a new section of Jesus' sermon. Um, This is a place where he begins to explain what it means to have unsurpassing righteousness. In verse 20, uh, David preached on this last week. He says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you certainly, you will certainly not inherit the kingdom, enter the kingdom of heaven. And so then he proceeds to unroll that teaching across six different topics. So we're going to be looking at the first of those this morning. And he, he introduces each topic with a variation on this phrase. He says, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. 
And on the surface, it may seem like Jesus is contradicting the law or that he's adding some new insight or some new teaching, but in fact, he's doing just the opposite. Throughout his ministry, whenever Jesus made reference to the Old Testament, he said, it is written. That means he is actually going back and directly quoting what was in the Old Testament Scriptures. But here he says, you have heard it was said. This is a phrase that Jesus uses to refer not to what is written in the law, but to how it was interpreted and how it was taught by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's a way of exposing their inadequate faith and practice. Back in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's exactly what he is doing here. He begins with the topic of murder, saying, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now the first part of this is clearly a reference to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. But unlike in the Ten Commandments where this command stands alone, here it's joined with a verse about punishment that comes from Numbers 35. And by conflating these verses together, the impact of the command is softened. The prohibition against murder, instead of being rooted in the very image of God, is now tied to civil punishment. In effect, the law is now understood as being fulfilled as long as you don't murder anyone. So this narrows the focus. It also makes it a much easier law to obey. And so the Pharisees could boast in their righteousness if they had never murdered anyone. But is that really such a great thing? Is it sufficient to just not murder people? Is that good enough? Imagine being set up on a blind date by a friend, and you ask your friend, well, what's he like? Is he a nice guy? And she says, well, he's never murdered anyone. Right? Would, you, would you go on that date? Would that be good enough for you? Would you hire a babysitter whose main qualification is that she's never murdered anyone? No. Right? That's not good enough. Because if we're honest, not murdering people is actually a pretty low bar. Right? That's, a, that's a low bar for civilization. That's a low bar for righteousness. I've managed to make it 43 years without murdering anyone. David Wiltshire's gone longer than that. Yes, that's impressive. It's not something to brag about. The reality is that the law actually goes much, much further than not murdering people. Because the problem with murder is not so much that it's a problem of our actions. It's a problem of our hearts. Jesus goes on to say that anyone who is angry will face judgment. And anyone who says raka or you fool is in danger of hell. Raka and fool are terms that communicate worthlessness. It's like calling someone a moron or an idiot. Or this is one of my favorite Shakespearean insults from King Lear. He says, thou art a boil, a plague sore. These are terms really not so much of contempt, of contempt but really of indifference. It's saying to someone, you don't matter. Your life doesn't matter. You are nothing. And so from there, it really is a short distance to lashing out with an anger that is indifferent to human life. It's important to note here you know, that this is what Jesus is talking about, is anger really for no good reason. right? I mean, if you go on, if you want to ask, I mean, doesn't Jesus get angry with people? Yes, Jesus gets angry with sin. He gets angry with injustice. He gets angry with those who turn the temple into a den of thieves. 
there are things that we can get angry about. But what Jesus is talking about is selfish anger. Right? When we are personally offended, when we feel like something is done against us, it's, it's this unreasonable response to what's happening. It really is rooted in, in this idea that we think we are better than people. And so we lash out. Earlier this year, when my, fun, when my, my son Finn was still in the NICU, uh, I was at the dog park with our dogs, Riley and Olive. And Olive ran over to play with this larger dog, and Riley doesn't play well with other dogs, not in a mean way. She's just kind of a dork, and she, you know, she, she wants to kind of roughhouse with other dogs. And so she runs up to this dog that's twice her size um, and tries to get to play, and this dog was really skittish and started yelping and running away. And she didn't do anything to the dog. She just kind of scared it. But I was like, okay, that's not a dog to play with. And so as I go over to get her, the owner of that dog thinks that his dog has been attacked, and he walks over and he just kicks her. I came unglued. Um, you know, because, yes, you know, was I mad that he kicked my dog? Yeah, but also there was all of this other stuff, all of this frustration, anger, helplessness that I felt about my son being in the hospital. All these other things just exploded on this guy in the dog park. Um, I mean, I screamed at that man like you shouldn't scream at any other person. Um, and as I got closer to him, I think everyone in the dog park thought I was just going to attack this guy and lay him out. Um, I never touched him, and yet every fiber of my being wanted to. Beyond yelling, I didn't act on my anger. I didn't punch the guy. I never laid hands on him. But I could feel that rage that was burning in my heart. My heart was ready to kill and to destroy that's what we see in the terrible, horrible thing that happened last Sunday. We see the worst in ourselves. Every time road rage has gotten the better of us, or we've taken out our frustration on some poor customer service operator, um, or we've yelled at the TV during a football game, or we've lost our patience with our children, we've shown the same anger that will kill and destroy so we don't have to ask, how could someone murder a church full of people? Because we realize murder doesn't begin with our actions or even with our words. Murder is born in our hearts. The difference between me and a murderer is really only a matter of degree. The difference between you and a murderer is really only a matter of degree. Everything that makes someone a murderer is already in our hearts. And whether we act on it or not, each of us already carries that anger that will kill and destroy. That's the point that Jesus is making about the law. It isn't enough to just not murder people. That was never the point of the law. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, requires making every lawful effort to preserve one's own life and the lives of others. So in other words, God law, God's law requires that we promote and protect life. And so what does that look like? Well, Jesus says it means living at peace with others. In fact, he says that reconciliation is more important than worship. In verses 23 and 24, he says, even if you are at the altar, about to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and you realize that there is some offense between you and another person, it's better for you to leave the sacrifice at the altar and first go and be reconciled. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus is talking to people in Galilee, 
These people live 70 miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. And so to leave your sacrifice at the altar means leaving it there. Leaving a live animal there in the temple for a week while you go to Galilee and come back. This would be ridiculously impractical. Which is really the point. Because if murder is a sin that lives in our hearts, then we can't properly worship if we are harboring anger. To worship God is to open our hearts to Him. To join our hearts to Him in praise and in adoration and to have our hearts restored by confession and assurance. And we can't do this if our hearts are consumed with anger. Our anger becomes an obstacle that will prevent us from worshiping properly. Because at its root, anger is about superiority. To be angry with someone is to look down on them. If I'm angry with you, it's because I believe that I'm better than you. I would never do what you have done. I could never do what you have done. The problem with anger is that it's a defect in our own hearts that we direct at other people. And it destroys us. In our bulletin this morning, there's a quote from Coretta Scott King that says, Hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated. Mrs. King was the widow of Martin Luther King Jr. Her husband was assassinated in 1968. And we might understand if she had been angry for the rest of her life. After all, her husband had been taken from her. Surely she had good reason to be angry. But she understood that hating her husband's murderer would only destroy her. To be reconciled means that we have to acknowledge the fault in our own hearts. I have inside of me the capacity to do every evil thing. But not only do I have the potential, I have real guilt because of real sin. Which is why repentance is so important. To be reconciled means we must repent of the anger and the indifference that we have held against each other. And until we do that, we're unfit for worship. Moreover, if we don't repent, we will be held accountable for every evil thing that is in our hearts. And we see, you know, what we see at the end of this passage may be the scariest part of the whole thing. Because Jesus says, settle matters quickly, or you may be thrown into prison, and you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. That's the full weight of the law at work. It's not good enough to just not murder people. We also have to acknowledge the anger in our hearts and we have to repent of our words of indifference and we have to seek reconciliation with those who we've hated and attacked. And Jesus says that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so if there's to be any hope for us, then we have to keep the law perfectly. But if we're honest about our anger, if we're honest about our murderous hearts, then we know that we can't keep God's law. See, we're not shocked when we hear about mass shootings, when we hear about terrible things that happen, because we actually know where that anger comes from. We know that that same anger lives in our own hearts. We're grieved by violence. We're heartbroken over the loss of life. But we're not shocked. Lyle Levitt wrote a song called Creeps Like Me that does a good job of capturing this reality. Um, in the song he says, I wear grandmother's ring on my finger, on my finger. She had a tooth of gold. And just before she died, she said, Son, you can have my tooth, but do I really have to go? 
Look around and you will see the world is full of creeps like me. You look surprised, you shouldn't be. The world is full of creeps like me. See, if we're honest about the condition of our own hearts, then sin doesn't shock or surprise us. Because the world is full of creeps like you and me. It's only when we admit our need that we're open to receive God's grace. Because, as I said before, the only difference between us and a mass murderer is a matter of degree. And also a matter of grace. Because without grace, we will face judgment. And we won't get out until we've paid every last penny. And that's a debt that we can't pay. God's law was never about us following the rules. It was always about showing us our need. When we take the law seriously, we realize that we can never keep it perfectly or fully. Even if we could change our actions, we can't change our hearts. We can't change what's inside of us. The reality is that God's law, while it seems simple, requires more than we can give. That's where the good news of the Gospel comes in. Jesus blessed those who are poor in spirit, those who are weak, and those who are angry, and those who cannot obey His commands. The one who spoke of judgment also faced judgment. The one who preached obedience gave His life for those who couldn't obey. The one who condemned murder was murdered on a cross. See, when we admit that our hearts are angry and murderous, we admit that our hearts are broken. We admit that we can't fix what's broken. And we admit that we need grace. And when we receive that grace, Jesus gives us a new heart so that we can repent of our anger. He gives us new life so that we can trust and rest in Him. Jesus says that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and that is only possible if we rest in His righteousness. May God give us grace to believe that to trust in His righteousness, in His goodness, in His promises for us this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You for the gift of Your Son. Lord, when we are honest about the condition of our hearts, it is devastating to us. Father, we know that we we cannot do enough to earn or to repay what we have done. Father, the good news is is that Jesus has stood in our place. He has taken the punishment that we deserve. He has earned the righteousness that we cannot. And Father, as He takes that punishment, He gives that righteousness to us. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us, as we come to this table, to cling and to trust in those promises, to trust in that righteousness. In the rich name of Jesus we pray. Amen.